Welcome to The Abandoned Carousel, the show where I take a deep dive into the stories of the most interesting abandoned and defunct theme parks and amusements in the world. I'm your host, Ashley. Today, I'm going to take you on a journey. I'm going to finally talk about carousels on The Abandoned Carousel, and I'm going to tell you the story of a carousel. Along the way, we're going to talk about trolley parks, amusement piers, hurricanes, roller coasters in oceans, and the incredible luck of a carousel more than a century old. This is the story of Floyd Moreland's Denzel Luth Carousel. So, I'm not going to lie. This episode started out as me trying to find a quote-unquote easy topic. Maybe a short topic, something that I could do as lighter fare in between some of the heavier and longer episodes that I've had for you lately. I've had this one sort of noodling around in the back of my mind, and it's based on an image I'd seen when searching for the phrase abandoned theme park. Somehow, this episode is not short, and it's a completely different story than the one I set out to tell originally. So much for the easy topic. Settle in and let's talk. Our story today begins almost 200 years ago. In 1829, Coney Island, a peninsula with sandy beaches, was linked to New York City by road. The first resorts opened up there as a result. And along with the resorts came something that we ironically rarely talk about here on the abandoned carousel, at least until today, and that's a carousel. Balmer's Carousel at Coney Island opened in 1875, and it featured hand-carved wooden animals, and it was powered by a steam engine. And this carousel was designed by a man named Charles Luff. Now, Luff was German. His birth name was Karl Jürgen Detlev Luff. He immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 18 in 1870. Once he arrived, he Americanized his name from Carl to Charles, and he moved to Brooklyn. There, he reportedly worked as a furniture carver during the day, but then he took wood scraps home with him, and in his nighttime leisure hours, he began carving animals. And after a few years, he had sufficient carousel animals carved that he set them up on a platform. And attached to a motor, the platform went around in a circle. There it was. It was a carousel. Loof set them up at Vanderveer's Bathing Pavilions on Coney Island. It was Coney Island's first carousel, and according to some, its first amusement ride. Now, the carousel as a ride has its origins in many cultures, centuries and centuries back. I'm not going to go too in-depth into the nitty-gritty details, but we might as well have a little bit of history. In brief, you can find carousel-like concepts in many cultures going back all the way to, like, 500 AD. The name carousel itself has roots in the Spanish word carosea, meaning little battle. And this word has its roots in the Italian word for chariot, which in turn ties back to the Proto-Indo-European caris, meaning to run. In Europe, between 1500 and 1800, the meaning of a carousel, what the actual word meant, evolved from sort of a, a horse-based jousting practice for the jousters, all the way to displays of showy horsemanship, all the way to 
carved wooden animals on display on the fair circuit. And this is much closer to what we know of as the modern carousel. So in the 1800s, the steam engine was invented, which really refined the carousel into what we know it today. Carousels in the 1800s and most of the 1900s were incredibly popular rides on the fair circuit. A contemporaneous writer from the mid-1860s described the ride as such. It, quote, whirled around with such impetuosity that the wonder is the daring riders are not shot off like cannonball and driven half into the middle of next month, end quote. And in the United States, moving into the 1900s, the carousel industry was booming. It was led by immigrants like Gustav Denzel and our friend Charles Luff, both from Germany. The turn of the 20th century was the golden age of the carousel. And in the golden age of carousels, each horse and animal were hand-carved out of wood. Several different dominant styles arose, and today there are considered sort of nine master carvers, nine people who are big names in the carousel world. Um, several different dominant styles within these carvers also uh, sort of separated themselves out. Country fair style was the hallmark of popular amusement names Alan Herschel and Edward Spillman, characterized by simpler horses, often without saddles. These country fair style carousels were often easy to move. Philadelphia style was the next major style, the hallmark of names like Gustav Denzel and the Philadelphia Toboggan Company. These carousels were often menagerie carousels, which is a carousel that contains both horses and non-horses, and these had realistic saddles and detailed carvings. Finally, the last major style was the Coney Island style, and this was characterized by flamboyance, mirrors, lights, jewel-bedecked animals, elaborate saddles. Charles Loof was the biggest name in this style, and he taught many other carvers, including the famous Ilions. Now, at the height of the carousel's popularity, over 5,000 carousels were said to have simultaneously operated in the United States. Even today, it seems like almost every amusement park has a carousel or a merry-go-round. It's probably, you know, by sheer numbers, you might consider it one of the most popular rides at a theme park. But the carousel today, of course, is not anything where it was back in the Golden Age. So as noted, Charles Loof not only built the first carousel at Coney Island, but he also went on to build many other carousels. He built a theme park. Oh, and he was even responsible for building part of the famous Santa Monica Pier. I already mentioned this, but it's worth emphasizing his renown for being one of the premier carvers in the Coney Island style, with flamboyant carousels, elaborate details from the carousel structure all the way down to the saddles on the horses. Now, the carousel that we're going to focus on today was Loof's 18th carousel, and it was built around 1910 in conjunction with Gustave Denzel. Now, different sources place one or the other of the carvers as the true designer. For the purposes of this story right now, I'll refer to it as Loof's carousel. 
Eventually, of course, as the title of the episode suggests, the full name of the carousel as it stands right now is the Floyd J. Moreland Denzel Louvre Carousel, which is quite the mouthful. Okay, 18th Carousel, 1910. Around this time, the Manhasset Realty Company was formed for the purposes of purchasing the Seaside Heights beachfront property in New Jersey. The 18th Carousel didn't go directly to the newly formed Seaside Heights, however. Instead, it went to a small park on an island in the Delaware River near Philadelphia. And this was called Burlington Island. Now, Burlington Island had originally been called Mantinacunk Island by its original inhabitants, the Lenape people. Mantinacunk meaning Island of Pines, more or less. It changed hands many times after the first European settlement there in the 1600s, as well as names. You can also find references to this place as High Island and Verholsten Island prior to the modern Burlington Island. Eventually, it was granted to the city of Burlington for primarily farming use after, you know, uh, going through various European settlers. The residents reportedly often campaigned for a bridge to be built between the island and the city of Burlington on the mainland, but this never actually happened. So in 1900, the first family picnic resort opened on the lower half of the island. And here I'll pause to say that if you remember back to the Rose Island episode of The Abandoned Carousel, which you can find at theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 10, you'll see quite a few parallels to the story of Burlington Island as they're really um, quite contemporaries in this sort of um, steamboat, steamboat accessed uh, resort theme park type of thing right at the turn of the century. So at Burlington Island... The developer put in picnic tables, a bathhouse, he built a pier, and he had sand deposited in order to form a real beach. There was also an ice cream stand. All told, this was a huge draw at the turn of the century. Reportedly, 4,000 people visited the island in just a single day at the peak of the 1902 season. An early contemporaneous newspaper description of the park was, quote, an ideal temperance picnic resort, end quote. Around 1907, with things going so well, the park owners reportedly talked to the owner of another park, Rancocas Lake Park in Mount Laurel, New Jersey. And that park was a trolley park. Now, we haven't really discussed the concept of trolley parks in any detail here on the abandoned carousel, but trolley parks are an important part of amusement park history. In the latter part of the 1800s, working hours were reduced, disposable income was on the rise, and the rapid industrialization was occurring. Trolley or streetcar lines sat idle on the weekends, much to the dismay of their operating companies. In an effort to increase weekend ridership and, of course, therefore profits, the companies began building trolley parks at the ends of the lines. These were small amusement and resort areas, often near lakes or beaches, with picnic grounds, carousels, and other small mechanical amusement attractions. Trolley parks, then, are the precursors to the modern amusement park, and in some cases, there are still some operational today. You might know about Lakemont Park in Altoona, Pennsylvania, 
or Kennywood in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Most famously, you might know Lake Compounds in Bristol, Connecticut, built in 1846 and considered the oldest continuously operating amusement park in the United States. So back to Rancocas Lake Park, as we were talking about. It was located 12 miles south of Burlington Island. And this park was opened by a man named George Potts in the early 1900s. Rancocas Park was a classic trolley park. There were picnic groves, a dance pavilion, a midway, a carousel, other amusement rides. That carousel, it was a nice carousel. It was described as a classic Philadelphia-style carousel, housed in its own building to keep off the elements. It reportedly had beautifully carved horses, and it was quite popular with the visitors to Rancocas Lake Park. So I told you that the owners of Burlington Island at the time were talking to the owners of Rancocas Lake Park, Potts. And so they actually, the two parks came to an agreement around 1907. In a move to generate additional revenue, Potts relocated several of his amusement rides to Burlington Island for several years. And these rides joined a set of what are described as large swings, kind of like swing-like cages. Um, These might be the Venetian swings that are sometimes referenced, already present on the island. This only lasted for a few years. After an unknown time, Burlington Island management purchased updated versions of the rides that they were borrowing, and Potts' rides were moved back to Rancocas Park in Mount Laurel. So here, then, is the time frame where our 18th Loof Carousel was built, sometime between 1908 and 1910, and subsequently was delivered to Burlington Island. The carousel featured chariots and animals that were carved by Loof, as well as by other big names in the carousel world, including Denzel, Morris, Carmel, and Ilions. This particular carousel is reportedly considered unique in that it was worked on or contains elements from so many of the master carvers, the big, big names. This carousel has 35 jumping horses, 18 standing horses, those are the biggest, fanciest, most beautiful ones that are on the outside of the carousel, a lion, a tiger, a mule, two camels, and two chariots. Some of its animals are reportedly even older than the carousel itself. Some are said to date back to the 1890s. Of course, it's not surprising given the time frame, but the carousel was reportedly quite popular, as was Burlington Island itself. It was becoming this very popular entertainment mecca. Visitors came in droves from both sides of the river, from Pennsylvania and from New Jersey. Now, in 1917, the island was sold. Well, half of the island. We'll get to it in a minute. But basically, the top half is owned by one place, The bottom half is owned by another place. So the island, the amusement park part of the island, was sold to new owners, George Bassler and Robert Merkel. And they kind of upped the ante for the amusement park. They gave it the longer name Burlington Island Beach Park. And sometimes you'll see it called just Burlington Island. Sometimes you'll see it just called Island Beach Park. Either one means the same thing. So... These two new owners really wanted to jazz up the park, and the newly updated park was described by one source as elaborate. A 1921 Bristol Daily Courier article described the owner's goals for the park. 
And at the time, they were to become, quote, one of the biggest and most popular pleasure resorts in the East, end quote. And this same article is actually really interesting. Of course, it's like a lot of older newspaper articles, a lot different from modern day articles. This article devotes multiple paragraphs to the food that was served at the meeting where Burlington Island management and the local communities met to talk about their plans for this park. Apparently, they served roast pig garnished with an oyster dressing. On the side, roasted sweet and white potatoes, hamburger steak, corn, celery, bread, pickles, coffee, pie, and cheese. Hungry? New attractions were set to be opened May 15, 1922, including, quote, a roller coaster, a merry-go-round, whip, airships, and Venetian swings, end quote, according to the newspaper article. And it's not clear if by merry-go-round they mean the 18th Louf carousel that we've been talking about. I couldn't find additional detail one way or another about that, so we'll just let that pass. Other sources also mention a Ferris wheel, a boat swing, an ocean wave, whatever that one is, a tunnel of love, a steeplechase, tumblebug, dodgem cars, bumper scooters, caterpillar, a fun house, a rifle range, and a pony ride. And the management owned some of them, but others were owned sort of by like independent contractors. And like the some of the concession stands too were owned by independent contractors and not necessarily park management itself. The centerpiece of the updated park was a delightful wooden coaster called the Greyhound, which had already begun construction in fall of 1921. This was, by all accounts, a very nice out-and-back coaster. From the 1921 article that's a really good reference for this time period, described by a representative of the Baker and Miller Company, quote, it is to have a 4,000 feet run with a height of 55 feet and eight dips. There will be a 400 foot tunnel at the beginning of the ride. This will be dark and suitable for lovesick couples. The coaster will be the very latest thing of its kind. End quote. This coaster was designed by the famous John A. Miller, the Miller part of Baker and Miller Company. And it was built by Harry C. Baker, the Baker part of Baker and Miller Company. Miller and Baker were a dynamic duo responsible for many popular coasters of the era. Miller is actually considered by some to be the father of the modern high-speed roller coaster due to his patented design for the under-friction wheel. It was patented in 1919, and it's used on nearly every coaster in the world today. Of course, at the park, there was a miniature train. This one was called the Reading Railroad. The Carousel 2 got an upgrade. At this time, a Whirlington military band organ, Model 146A, was shipped to Wissahickon Station in May of 1924 to add to the carousel and entertain guests with delightful music as they whirled around on their horses. Reportedly, the Burlington Island Beach Park became the hit of the river under new ownership. 1927 ad copy described the park in a local newspaper saying, quote, Nature's beauty and modern amusement devices combine to make Burlington Island one of the most popular pleasure parks, end quote. Thousands of people reportedly took river excursions up and down the Delaware, 
leading to sometimes six or seven steamers idling at the pier at any given time. Some people would come by train to a local town and then take the ferry boat over. The ferry boat was called the William E. Doron, and it shuttled people back and forth from Bristol to the island. There was a promenade and a midway. There were lighted walking paths and, as described, multiple rides. As the Industrial Age came into full swing, this was the place to be. Now, there are two semi-conflicting stories about the flaming end of Burlington Island. The common point between both stories is the method. The end of the Burlington Island Beach Park came with fire, the nemesis of many early parks. At Quibble, the dates. The first story is the most common story, and it's repeated almost everywhere, including the Historic American Building Survey, number HABSNJ1141, through the Library of Congress. And this story tells of two fires, the first and most destructive in 1928. In 1928, a fire is said to have begun at 2 a.m. As the park was on an island, the firefighters and their equipment had to be ferried across to the island in boats. As such, nearly all of the rides and amusements had burned to the ground by the time the firefighters were able to even begin fighting the fire. The fire reportedly more or less destroyed the amusement park, and a second fire in 1934 sealed the fate of the park. Now, the other story is newer, but reputable, making it worth describing here. And it comes from historian Paul W. Shop to the Riverton, New Jersey Historical Society, and I'll include a link in the show notes. Again, there are links for everything that I am talking about. All the references are in the show notes at my website, theabandoncarousel.com backslash 21. This updated story is nice to go look at too, because you can see some images of the original rectangular carousel building, as well as the newer round building, both at Burlington Island. Okay, so Shop maintains that no fire occurred at Burlington Island in the 1920s, and especially not in 1928. He points out the timing, this was during the Great Depression, and the general closure of Delaware River steamboat traffic as factors that led to the actual closure of the rides and concessions at the amusement park towards the end of the 1920s. Shop describes the conflagration similarly to the previous story with just one difference, and that's the date. He gives an actual date, April 24th, 1932. The Daily News in New York printed a story on this date describing multiple fires that broke out in the area the night previous. Here they describe a small fire on Burlington Island, two small houses, and several barns were destroyed in a blaze that covered a wide area on Burlington Island in the Delaware River, end quote. An alternate article from the Asbury Press from the same day provides an expanded view. The paper describes how the fire swept through the entire island, causing a loss of over $100,000, which was a lot in 1932. It's a lot today, but it's even more in 1932, including summer homes and most of the amusement park buildings. Shop then gives the dates of January 28, 1934, for the second fire. 
And this, again, can be backed up by newspaper articles, primary sources. This time, the paper is the Bristol Daily Courier. And the paper describes how the firefighters from Bristol and Burlington were ferried to the island to put out the blaze, reportedly accidentally caused by two young boys, although some other sources do claim arson from a rival theme park. Quote, One of the amusement concessions, the scenic railway, partly wrecked by flames, can be seen on the right. In the foreground are firemen battling the blaze with buckets of water and chemicals. End quote. And the image being referenced does in fact show the half-burnt scenic railway coaster Greyhound, visible even in the free public access view. It's worth clicking on the link and taking a look. Another article from the paper The Mercury charmingly describes the firefighters rowing themselves across the Delaware in rowboats stacked with buckets in their attempts to fight the fire. So, based on newspaper reports, primary sources, we know that there was a fire in 1932, and then there was another fire that sealed the deal in 1934. So what about 1928, that date that everyone references? Well, there's a 1972 retrospective that is in the Philadelphia Inquirer about the history of Burlington Island that gives the date of 1928. And as mentioned many times, almost every single secondary source that discusses the carousel's history mentions this 1928 fire. However, I spent a lot of time looking, and I've been unable to find any newspaper references to a 1928 fire at Burlington Island. So if you know anything about the possible 1928 fire, please write in and let me know. Whenever exactly the first fire occurred, though, the hero of today's story, Luf's 18th Carousel, miraculously escaped the blaze, nearly unscathed, and it was only partially damaged by fire. Burlington Island, however, was done for, especially by the second fire in 1934. Merkel, without the interests or the funds to rebuild, sold the land, this time to the Van Sivier Sand Company, and he began selling off any salvageable amusement rides. In the 1950s, the Sand Company began mining sand and gravel from their half of the island, where the former amusement park used to be. And this actually created the large lake that you can now see in aerial views of the island. Currently, the city of Burlington owns this half of the land. The other half is actually owned by a board of island managers, a trust that actually predates the formation of the United States back to 1682. Their charter states that any development on their portion of the land must be, quote, educational, conservational, historical, or recreational, end quote. At the time of this recording in 2019, Burlington Island is undeveloped. Now, let's pause for a moment and head 60 miles due east from Burlington Island to Seaside Heights, New Jersey, going back in time. Not in the modern day anymore. Let's go back all the way to the early 1900s. A development company had just purchased the property with the intent to build. This was exciting because the land is and was a barrier island. And at the time, this was considered not useful. This wasn't useful land. You couldn't farm. You couldn't produce food there. 
The general opinion at the time was reportedly that oceanfront property was unattractive, especially financially. Developers, though, they were trying to change this. They began building and running excursion trains, trolleys, to the area to some newly built resorts. And by 1915, the land was changing hands to new owners. Around this time, the first carousel opened at Seaside Heights. The first carousel was built by a man named Joseph Vanderslice and the Senate Amusement Company. This was a really short-lived carousel, and it failed within a year, lasting from 1915 through 1916. The next summer, 1917, local builder Frank Freeman installed an electric Denzel carousel in a building right on the water's edge, only a few hundred feet from the shoreline, reportedly with figures carved by Daniel Muller. The National Carousel Association describes Muller saying that he is, quote, generally recognized as the greatest carver of carousel animals, carving very realistic and artistic animals, end quote. Reportedly, Muller's only remaining carousels are at Forest Park in Queens, New York, and at Cedar Point in Ohio. Now, Freeman, he didn't only add a carousel, but he added other amusements as well. There was an indoor dance hall, an arcade, a skating rink, and a pier for fishing. It was named the Freeman Amusement Center, and it became a successful trolley park. Now, this brings us back to the time frame of the destruction and downfall of Burlington Island. There was a man, a man named Robert Merkel. He might sound familiar because he was the previous owner of Burlington Island. But he, this time, he had gotten involved with the development of Seaside Heights. And so Merkel facilitated the sale of the Loof Carousel to a Princeton contractor, Linus Gilbert. Now, Gilbert wanted to bring some competition to the popular Freeman's Amusement Center that was already there in Seaside Heights. And of course, the Louvre Carousel had been somewhat damaged by the fires at Burlington Island, but it was still overall in good shape. So some of the horses on the Louvre Carousel were missing or damaged. And so what they had to do was restore it and replace those damaged horses with horses from other carousels. They did that. And they moved it to Seaside Heights. They brought the Wurlitzer Band Organ as well. In 1932, the carousel is said to have officially opened at Seaside Heights. Gilbert is said to have brought the original building from Burlington Island as well, that 10-sided unenclosed building. This didn't do a great job of keeping the weather off, and it made the neighbors complain due to the constant loud noise from the Wurlitzer organ. Additionally, the Louvre carousel was smaller and less elaborate than the neighboring Freeman carousel down at the other end of the boardwalk. These were separated by quite some distance. And this new carousel, this new building that they were setting up, was also completely detached from the other established amusements in the area. It was up at the north end of the boardwalk, where there was only the Louvre carousel and a fishing pier, and not much else. The first few years were tight not only locally, but also nationally. Again, this was the Great Depression. The economy of hand-carved carousels was collapsing. It was too expensive, too expensive to build, too expensive to maintain. Starting from the 1930s onward, it was the downfall 
of the hand-carved wooden carousel. Fiberglass, aluminum, plastic, all of those were the new regular order of the day. After those tight first few years, though, Gilbert saw some success. He was succeeding with his project. And so he built a larger surrounding complex around the carousel, including an Olympic-sized chlorine swimming pool. This was called the Seaside Heights Pool and was reportedly, quote, a big deal, end quote, in the community, according to a later owner of the Casino Pier, which the complex eventually was named. This pool itself drew thousands of people, and it gave the owners reason to build more attractions along the pier. There was a fishing pier, and they built it out. They built it oceanwards with a few more modest attractions. In 1948, a man named John Fitzgerald and his business partner, John Christopher, purchased Casino Pier from Linus Gilbert. Like I said earlier, carousels were beginning to fall out of favor, not only from being expensive and difficult to maintain, but the younger generation was seeking thrills, and the older generation couldn't make up the gap. The audience for the slower-moving carousels was dwindling. Oftentimes, at this time, the most efficient way to dispose of a carousel at a theme park looking for space, it was to just set it on fire. Can you even imagine? The town of Seaside Heights began to expand after the war, with veterans coming back for good jobs and pleasant, inexpensive Oceanside housing. And this meant expansion for Seaside Heights amusements as well. A man named Kenneth Wynn Jr. had married Fitzgerald's daughter, Wynn was a lawyer and a lobbyist, and he later worked for a TV station. Meanwhile, down the beach, there was catastrophe. Visiting the Freeman's Carousel, that glorious Muller carousel with its beautiful details. Yes, it was fire. The wooden carousel burned to the ground, completely destroyed. Floyd Moreland, we'll get to him, references a quote-unquote phantom carousel in a letter to the site CarouselCorner.com, saying it, quote, operated only half the summer of 1955, end quote. An Ilian's carousel, formerly the Chaffetino carousel from Coney Island, replaced it in 1957. And this was a truly spectacular carousel. I'll put a link in the show notes where you can see some images of this beautiful, beautiful carousel. With the new carousel came a new pier and a new name. It was called Funtown Pier. In the late 1950s, Fitzgerald came to win, asking for him to take over some of the park management and operations. John Christopher had passed away in 1959, and John Fitzgerald had inherited or purchased the full ownership rights. Wynne was Fitzgerald's son-in-law, and he accepted the offer to manage the park, somewhere between 1958 and 1960. Quote, I like the idea of coming to the casino pier here because it was showbiz, something with a flair to it, end quote, he said in a newspaper interview. Wynne quickly expanded the pier eastward, and he began adding more and more amusements and rides. Our hero, the Denzel Louvre Carousel, got an upgrade to its Wurlitzer organ, and it was converted from a single roll, the music player, like where the notes come from, or they come from this paper roll with holes punched in them, to a double roll. I'm going to include a link to a really interesting 2001 article that details exactly how 
Wurlitzer music rolls are made, and it includes all these photos. It's an incredibly demanding, detailed process, and it's well worth reading. So, Wynn met up with Zurich-born Eddie Muir, and he sold amusement rides on the behalf of their manufacturers. Muir and Wynn built up a good and regular relationship. Quote, each year he would bring another spectacular ride, end quote. Wynn is quoted as saying in the local paper. The first true roller coaster at the pier was a Schiff wooden wild mouse coaster, which opened in 1958 although a kiddie coaster is said to have been at the pier in 1952. In 1963, the first Himalaya ride in the United States opened, right there at the Casino Pier. You might remember the Himalaya from a different episode on this podcast, the Electroni episode, where I went a bit more in-depth into the Caterpillar and Music Express rides. And of course, Himalaya is another name for Music Express. 1964 saw the installation of the Skyride, taking visitors from the pool area all the way to the east end of the pier at the time. And this, again, ties back to a different episode. This was essentially a Skyway-type ride, offering excellent views and a mild thrill. Of course, the Skyway had been a novelty and a marvel stateside when it opened at Disneyland in 1956. If you recall back to that first episode, one of those first episodes I did here on the Abandoned Carousel. Parks around the country were jumping to follow in Walt's footsteps. And Disneyland's imported European Skyway began a U.S. boom in similar type rides within the next decade. 1965 was a year... It saw the expansion of the pier again out into the ocean, but it also saw a major fire. June 10th, 1965, a major fire whipped up by the wind on the pier destroyed quite a few rides. In particular, the wild mouse was absolutely burnt to a crisp. Interestingly, this was actually all caught on film, and you can find it on YouTube. And again, I will link that in the show notes. In the video, you can see the fire just burning. Burning around the Ferris wheel, burning around the wild mouse, burning around that new first, that two-year-old Himalaya ride, even burning around a scrambler. And in the video, the firefighters, they're putting out the blaze, patrons are looking on, people are wearing swimsuits, it's, it's kind of a wild scene. A later article that I read actually describes how the fishermen around that time were so intent on having their fishing pier back that they reportedly chipped in with free labor with Casino Pier provided materials in order to help begin the rebuilding effort. A second Wild Mouse roller coaster was brought in for the remainder of the 1965 season, running at a different place on the pier. The next season, 1966, a third Wild Mouse coaster was brought in, placed on the site of the original Wild Mouse. And we do actually have an image of this coaster, but this was actually a very short-lived ride, and it would take another 30 years until another Wild Mouse coaster actually came back to Casino Pier. Now we enter the 70s, and things were maybe a little bit calmer. In 1970, a Schwarzkopf Jetstar was purchased, brand new, and installed on the pier. You might remember a sibling of the Jetstar that we've already discussed here on the podcast, the Jetstar 2 the one that's standing but not operating at Children's World in Electroni. Though, as a sidebar, that actually might not be standing but not operating for very long. 
Internet hearsay is that some of the rides at Electra and I have already been demolished between the time of that episode that I did and the time of this episode that I'm doing right now. How do you like that update? In 1975, the first Enterprise ride in the United States was installed right here at Casino Pier. Again, more firsts right at this right at this amusement park on this little pier. Why so many firsts? Well, remember, Wynn was notably interested in the European ride circuit from his friend Mir. You might remember the Enterprise ride, if you're not familiar with that one, from my abandoned Yangon amusement park episode here on the abandoned carousel. In 1976, the Wurlitzer organ on the carousel received a major rebuild from the BAB Organ Company. At the same time, mirrors featuring sculpted horse heads were actually added to the center pole of the carousel. Originally, there had been paintings in this position, but these were destroyed in the 1950s. Cause of the destruction was not clear, and cartoon prints had been in place between the 50s through 1976. But in 1976, they put in these mirrors with these big horsehead busts on them, and that's actually what's still in place today on the carousel. Back at Casino Pier proper, in 1979, the Love Bugs Indoor-Outdoor Coaster was added. This was a ride built in 1959 for a traveling German carnival, known then as the Broadway Trip. This coaster operated at a number of different parks before arriving at Casino Pier, including Fun Forest in Seattle, Cedar Point in Ohio, and Palisades Park in New Jersey. The coaster was renamed to Wizard's Cavern in 1988 and finally demolished all the way in 2003. A good long run for a once-traveling coaster. Okay, so that brings us to 1984. Wynn almost sold the carousel. By this time, the carousel was in need of repair, and a sale had actually apparently been arranged to the tune of $275,000. Individual horses were selling for up to $100,000 at that time, as private collectors who had seen, you know, the carousels had been burned even in the earlier years, but suddenly it was in vogue to have these carousel horses in living rooms and not at theme parks. So it was actually economically much better to break up the carousels, so to speak, and get more money out of them. Down the beach, the Ilion's Chapatino carousel had been broken up and sold at auction around the same time to be replaced by a Chance Rides fiberglass recreation. Ultimately, though, Wynn decided not to sell the Louvre carousel. Why was that? Enter Dean of the City University of New York, also a classics professor, Dr. Floyd Moreland. He'd ridden the carousel as a young child every single summer. In his later adolescence and college and grad school years, he actually worked at the casino pier operating the same carousel, even coming all the way back from school every summer in California in order to operate the ride. Quote, it paid my way through college. It paid my way through graduate school. End quote. He once said to the newspaper, He began campaigning to save the carousel when rumors began to spread about its demise around this time. Ultimately, he did succeed, and with a group of dedicated volunteers and private donors, he began to refurbish the carousel in the unheated building during the pier's off-season. In 
members of the community were actually able to donate in order to support the restoration, and many of the animals today are inscribed with the names of particular donors on particular animals. One of the prominent people involved in the restoration was veterinarian Dr. Norma Mengetti, and she actually assisted Dr. Moreland patching and painting, rebuilding the animals, the chariots, even the original paintings on the center pole. She actually operated the ride on weekends for many years. Moreland later described her as having, quote, put her heart and soul into the renovation, upkeep, and operation of the carousel at Casino Pier, end quote. Moreland's partner, Elaine Egues, was also heavily involved in the carousel and its restoration, and the two of them actually ran the carousel-themed shop on the boardwalk together, which was called the Magical Carousel Shop. After the successful preservation of the carousel, things seemed to be going well, both for the carousel and for Seaside Heights. This was the 80s and the 90s now. The Wurlitzer organ was updated again in 1986 with the addition of glockenspiel bells, a cheerful upgrade to the sound of the now 62-year-old organ. In the late 1980s, Wynne and Bennett remodeled the original arcade building and pool area where the carousel was located. These original structures were actually causing a traffic obstruction because when they were built, the road wasn't where it was now or at that time in the 80s. Um, and so these original structures were causing this traffic jam and required motorists to detour around the casino pier structures. And so by tearing down the arcade and remodeling it, Wynn and Bennett granted the municipality the ability to continue their road. This wasn't just a kind-hearted gesture, of course. This made it easier for people to get to Casino Pier and Park and therefore created more business. Quote, it is the smartest move we ever made, end quote. Mr. Wynn said to the newspaper at one point, quote, because it opened up the town, made everything more accessible, and also made us the middle of the boardwalk rather than the end, end quote. The waterworks opened on the site of the former swimming pool. This was now a water park. There were water slides, a lazy river, and the new arcade building was renamed to Palace Amusements. And of course, the centerpiece of the Palace Amusements building, the original Denzel Loof Carousel. By 1988, it was actually said to attract 150,000 visitors per year and was valued at $750,000. By 1988, Wynn was not interested. He sold his family's share of the business to Robert Bennett, already a partner in the park since the early 1980s. Wynn cited excessive governmental regulations, difficulty finding employees, etc. as reasons for choosing to sell. He was getting older, he was ready to retire, and it just wasn't as fun for him as it used to be, was his general opinion at the time, as he described to the papers. Under new ownership, an E.F. Miller mouse coaster was installed 1999, some 30 years after the last time a mouse coaster operated on the pier. It was demolished in 2012, but we'll get to that in a minute. The other big coaster at the time, the Jetstar, closed in 2000, and it was removed. The only currently operational Jetstar coaster is at Luna Park La Palmiere in France. Our good carousel friend, now fully named the Floyd J. Moreland Denzel Louvre Carousel, 
was around about 90 years old at this point. And the Wurlitzer organ was 76 years old. Unfortunately, everything was showing its age. In the fall of 2000, the organ was described as, quote, like a poor soul on life support, end quote. That winter, then, the organ was shipped off to Carlisle, Pennsylvania, to the Mechanical Musical Instrument Restoration Shop. There, the organ underwent a complete restoration, involving multiple skilled artisans and almost every part recreated, remachined, or rebuilt. I'm going to include a link detailing the restoration, and again, I do strongly recommend you click through and read this article, even if you don't give a fig about the technical details of Wurlitzer organ restoration. It was an eight-month saga, and it involves a sudden death, the mourning of a friendship, and the rebuilding of lives along with the rebuilding of an instrument. It's really a well-done piece. In 2002 now, Bennett sold his portion of Casino Pier to the Storino family. You might remember that I just told you that a ride called the Jetstar closed in 2000. Well, confusingly, the Star Jet was added in 2002. This is not a typo, it's not a misspeak, it's a different coaster, and it's super confusing. It came from E and F. Miller. Only two of these coasters were actually ever made, and the other coaster has been at three different parks. Currently, that coaster is sitting disassembled at Fun Spot America Atlanta, waiting to be rebuilt. This coaster was called the Starjet, and it entertained riders for a solid decade with coaster thrills right at the end of Casino Pier. We'll get back to the Starjet in a minute. In 2004, Waterworks, the Casino Pier-associated water park, was remodeled, and it was given its current branding, Breakwater Beach. 2010 saw the 100th anniversary of the Floyd J. Moreland Denzel Louvre Carousel. It's a good name, but it's a long name. TV's The Cake Boss apparently was reportedly on hand with a cake depicting the carousel, and it continued to do solid business, particularly with carousel enthusiasts, though videos and photos really start to show half-empty rides more often than not. And then we reach 2012. Here in 2012, this is where I'd originally intended this, quote, short, end quote, story to start. Remember, I was telling you this was supposed to be a quick and easy story, a quick and easy episode? No, sorry. I'm very funny. So here's the thing. So if you do searches for abandoned amusement parks and you look at the images, you'll see some really popular images that are repeated over and over and over. There's this creepy, decayed caterpillar train. There's the ghostly spiral of the coaster at Nara Dreamland. There's the radioactive rides at Chernobyl's Pripyat. And then there's this, this mysterious image of a roller coaster sitting in the middle of the ocean. Remember the star jet? The deadliest, most destructive hurricane of the 2012 season was Hurricane Sandy. Superstorm Sandy. Between October 22nd and October 29th, Sandy battered the Bahamas, Cuba, the eastern U.S., and specifically, the Jersey shoreline. She currently stands as the fourth costliest hurricane in United States history, estimated at about $65 billion. 
the Jersey Shore and Seaside Heights in particular were among the worst hit areas. Quote, you can't even imagine, end quote, was said of the damage. The flooding and massive waves caused collapses and damage to both Funtown Pier and Casino Pier there at Seaside Heights. And this is where we get that iconic image, the Starjet floating in the ocean all by itself from some perspectives. Essentially, the end of Casino Pier just collapsed, and the Starjet essentially just dropped, and it was sitting there right in the middle of the ocean next to the pier. All told, 18 rides at Casino Pier, including the Starjet coaster, were destroyed by Hurricane Sandy. Cleanup, of course, took quite some time, not surprisingly. The Starjet actually sat in this position in the ocean for almost seven months before it was finally demolished in May of 2013. And this has led to those incredible images and video of the quote-unquote abandoned coaster. You can search Flickr, YouTube, Google, and you'll find them. Incredible photos, incredible videos. This, then, is the source of that mysterious, strange image of a roller coaster in the ocean, seemingly perfectly intact. Maybe not so mysterious after all, but certainly sad, and certainly iconic. So that was what I was originally going to tell you about. And I'm really glad that I actually got all the rest of this story out of my research, because I think the story of the carousel is honestly way more interesting than just the story of the Starjet coaster. So after the hurricane, business along the Jersey Shore slowly began to recover. Of course, cleanup and rebuilding is a slow, slow process. Casino Pier, Funtown Pier, they both began cleaning up in the off-season. The century-old carousel, again the hero of our story, the Moreland Denzel Loof carousel, it was still standing. Again, it had magically been untouched by nature. Yes, there was some sand that got in the building, and yes, the pier's basement had flooded, but the horses were still there, nothing fell on the roof. Once again, the carousel really showed its luck, and it escaped the power of the hurricane. But again, the pier's basement had flooded. And so not only the mechanics for all the other rides in the pier, but also the mechanics for the carousel, they were all flooded. And everything was left in standing water for quite some time. There was really no way to determine whether the inner workings of the ride had actually been damaged. But... When electricity to the pier was finally turned on again right before Memorial Day, almost seven months after the hurricane, the carousel came to life. It was open for Memorial Day weekend that year, 2013. Down the beach, though, things weren't quite as lucky. Despite surviving the actual hurricane in a near miss, apparently some... Um, some rides had actually fallen on part of that carousel building, that fiberglass chance rides carousel ended up burning down in 2013. More than 50 businesses nearby in a six alarm fire in 2013. The fire was actually due to 
Hurricane Sandy. The floodwaters had corroded some of the wiring, and then there was a spark from the compromised electrical wiring that actually caused the fire. And so the Freeman's Carousel, the Funtown Pier, it was all gone. It did not reopen. As of a 2018 article that was doing a sort of five-year retrospective on the fire, several attractions were in the planning process, but none had yet come to fruition. And as of the time of this recording, the current consensus that I understand from the owners in the public articles that I've read is that they are not rebuilding the pier. In 2014, the Moreland Carousel was nearly sold again. As of 2014, an article described the carousel as, quote, quietly for sale, end quote, the prior few years, and then openly for sale the last few years prior to 2014, so the late 2010s. The carousel was apparently described as in poor shape, needing major repairs, perhaps due to Hurricane Sandy and its floodwaters, and ridership was decreasing. At the time, the owners blamed the economy, declining ridership, and just general maintenance expenses for this historic carousel. Locals and carousel enthusiasts were worried. They feared that terrible carousel fate. And at this time, it, w- it hadn't been seen in almost 10 years, um, more than 10 years, in fact. Uh, the last major carousel that had been split up was the Whalen Park Carousel in 2000. But the auction company that put up the carousel for auction, um, they were going to split up the carousel if there wasn't a buyer for the carousel as a whole. And so support groups all over were started. You know, this is the Facebook age now. And there were all kinds of groups that were started to save the carousel. Ultimately, a deal was proposed by the mayor at the time. And it ultimately went forward. So in this deal... The borough would take control of the carousel, and they would take a parking lot that was owned by Casino Pier. And in return, they would swap some oceanfront public property that was just north of the pier to Casino Pier. So Casino Pier, they'd get some land where they could rebuild after the storm, and the borough would get the historic carousel and a little bit of land in a different area. The deal, ultimately, it did generate some controversy and some legal challenges, which did not, they were all overturned. Um, But the general public opinion of the deal was positive. The land swap enabled Casino Pier to rebuild and expand after their losses during Hurricane Sandy. 2016 saw a mini golf course and a new wave pool at Breakwater Beach, the water park part of the park, And they began construction on that new expansion to the pier. This was the land that was traded in the carousel land swap. And so by January of 2017, they had a new Ferris wheel and a new extreme roller coaster being constructed on this new pier. And the coaster actually opened. Both of these rides opened in the summer of 2017. Hydrus is the name of the coaster, and it's called a Eurofighter coaster. And this ride definitely sounds way too extreme for me personally, but perhaps you might like it. It is a 70-foot tall vertical lift hill and a quote-unquote beyond vertical drop, where essentially the coaster goes 
over 90 degrees down the lift hill. So it almost goes underneath the lift hill. Oh, it sounds awful to me. Um, this coaster opened in May of 2017, and the, the giant Ferris wheel opened in June of 2017. In April of 2019, the current year, the carousel took its last ride there at Casino Pier after 87 years of operation. Now, this isn't a sad episode, but this is what's happening with the carousel. I'm recording this episode on the 1st of October, 2019. Later this month, the Floyd Moreland Carousel is slated to be disassembled by the Ohio Restoration Group Carousels and Carvings. The parts are to be stored in a workshop owned by the city nearby and begun restoration. See, the borough estimated a cost of approximately $4.5 million in order to construct a new building for this carousel, according to the local paper. The group has applied for several grants, including one specifically for historical preservation and another for the repair of the physical structure of the carousel, including machinery, decking, and horses. And this is obviously a lot of money for a local government to cover. A local ballot initiative in November may or may not change how the local government can use uh, public taxes in order to help preserve historical landmarks like this. And a Seaside Heights Historical Society um, planned to be created years ago after Sandy, but delayed in its formation until earlier this year, was created, a nonprofit volunteer-run group that is the official fundraising group for the Moreland Carousel Restoration and for other similar projects in the future. Um, I encourage you to check out their website. It contains some information about the project, and it includes a set of detail shots from the carousel, as well as blueprints for the planned future new building. And actually, a few weeks ago, a new sign was put up at the location of the carousel's future home, according to Facebook. The mayor of Seaside Heights is quoted as saying that he hopes the carousel will be up and running in its new location by summer 2021. For many years, the carousel was the symbol of Seaside Heights. I mean, literally, it was the symbol. It decorated official insignia, flags, and police cars. The carousel, as Moreland himself once wrote in an article, was the soul that shaped the development of this once barren, mile-long stretch of Jersey shoreline. Today, the carousel is still a declining breed. Of course, the majority of the masterfully hand-carved wooden animals from a century ago were burned or destroyed following the Depression, and the many carousels that were still extant fell into disrepair. But even a modern aluminum or fiberglass carousel can still be an excellent connection today to those golden days. Riding one, you might close your eyes, you might sit back, you might picture a different time, when the simple pleasure of a carousel going round and round was the pinnacle of the amusement scene. for listening to this week's episode of The Abandoned Carousel, where I told you about Burlington Island and Casino Pier, and especially about the historic century-old Floyd J. Moreland Denzel Loof Carousel. Please check out the official Historical Society page, seasideheightshistory.org, or find them on Facebook, facebook.com backslash seasideheightshistoricalsociety, all one word. 
As usual, check out my website for a complete set of show notes, including complete references beyond what I've just mentioned aloud. This week's episode can be found at theabandonedcarousel.com backslash 21. I'm always interested in hearing about your experiences with the places I talk about. I also love suggestions for future episodes and, of course, welcome corrections for this or past episodes. Contact me through my website or across social media as The Abandoned Carousel. I'll be back soon with another great episode. It's October, so maybe if everything goes as planned, the episodes will take a bit of a spookier tilt. I've been sick, so it depends on how my voice holds out. You'll have to come back to find out. Remember what Lucy Maud Montgomery once said, nothing is ever really lost to us as long as we remember it. 